Hello and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. I'm Taymour Azhari, joined as always by Benjamin Red. How's it going, Ben? Uh, it, it It's going well. There's a lot of stuff going on. There certainly is. Um, and this week, uh, we have Jad Rusin here to talk to us about it. Jad Rusin is a Lebanese journalist. Uh, hey, Jad, how are you doing? All is well. Hope you're good too. Yeah, uh, we we were super excited to have you on the uh, on the podcast today, Jad. Thanks so much for making the time for us. There's there is a whole lot of stuff to talk about, and usually the way that we do our podcast, you know, we we talk about the news first, and then we do a deep dive into some issue. I I think today though we're just going to talk about the news and the politics that all of these issues bring up, and it's 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 going to be more of just a. <laughs> you know, a single block for the most part of us going through and trying to analyze what is what exactly is going on in the country and what are the political reasons for it and the implications of it. Before we get into the the, the actual meat of it, a couple of things that are only slightly removed from politics, uh, but not really, right? Uh, coronavirus, obviously, number one. Yeah. Nobody seems to be talking about this anymore. It's, it's it's as though the vaccines arrived and Lebanon got immunized from any any more surges that could possibly happen. But that is not the case. Very much not the case. Uh, only something like a hundred thousand uh, doses have been administered so far. Uh, That's and, less than two percent of the population. Just just so you know, I mean, it's a tiny, tiny amount. Yeah, I mean, and and luckily, a lot of that is healthcare workers. Like that's that is good for fighting corona, but it it just the numbers aren't there to prevent obviously any any further surge. And so, if you if you go back and you look at uh, the number of new infections per day, right, that top line number back when we had the surge uh, right after the holidays when authorities opened up. We saw numbers that were, you know, 5,000 plus per day or whatever. Uh, then we had the strict lockdown in January and February. And then, and we did, the, the curve was bent, right? And, and and we got down, you know, to 2,000 something per day. Now, if we, if we go though over the past month or so uh, and look at the average number of new cases per day, four weeks ago, it was about 2,340 cases per day. Three weeks ago, 2,700 uh, cases a day. Two weeks ago, 2,900 cases a day, and the past week, 3,100 cases per day on average. So you can see as the country is opening back up, also the case numbers are rising, and that is extraordinarily concerning because we know, oh, that this could be about to take off yet again. And if you look at uh, you know, the health system, everybody's concerned about the hospitals, overcrowding, all of that stuff. Well, did did the numbers actually go down in the hospitals? Well, a little bit, but not that much. You know, uh, the ICU numbers went down. They were, you know, mid 900s at their peak. And then it went down to sub 900 at the beginning of March. But now we're back to the mid 900s. And meanwhile, ICU capacity has not increased that much. We're still, you know, something like five and six beds is still full ICU beds for COVID. So, uh the, the, this is a really, really concerning. Most likely another surge is coming, but this time will anything happen? Will there be a shutdown? Will you know authorities take the appropriate actions? Will the health system be able to cope? Will they be able to scale up capacity like they did the last time in order to avoid the worst case scenario? I, uh, yeah, I it's, I, it seems difficult, especially that the talk in the country now is there's so much talk of opening up. 
it seems like we, we hear almost every day and every week yeah. of different businesses and like the tourism ministry was saying they want to open up pubs and restaurants only at 50%. But come on, we saw we saw how that went in the past. I mean, the, those, those kinds of restrictions really aren't aren't sort of abided by, you know, in, in Lebanon. And so the idea that we would open up further, it's something that health officials completely say, like, we can't do that. You know, we, we really are in a position now where we can't afford to open up. And the country has been in, in some form of lockdown for what, for almost three months now? Uh, yeah, well, yeah. January, January was when the new lockdown started, right? Right. So yeah, yeah I think so January 8th, the light lockdown and then the 14th or something, the, the strict lockdown, but then. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and, you know, the head of the Hadidi University Hospital, Dr. Firas Abiyad, has been very pessimistic about this. You know, he's basically said, we, you know, we do look like we're, we're in a surge. But he also was very understanding, as Dr. Abiyad did. He was, he was like, listen, with the situation in the country today, it's understandable that people are sort of, you know, put, putting the COVID, COVID uh, pandemic in the back seat. There, there was also another uh, bit of news that I think got a lot of attention over the past uh, week or so. And that was this whole social media firestorm about Dr. Sandrine Atalla. Dr. Sandrine is, is, a, is a, a Lebanese a sexologist. Uh, she, she practices at, at the AUBMC. Um, and she also hosts a, a weekly podcast and uh, you know posts videos online. And basically, her whole thing is sexual health and sexual education in a region and in a country where basically it's not taught at schools. And people, as she told me, uh, don't even know what the names of their intimate parts are or what they do. And so Sandrina Atala, yeah. you know, makes these videos and speaks about these things. And Lebanese TV channels kind of uh, caught wind of this. And over the past sort of 10 days have taken to making fun of her, making fun of her videos and actually ridiculing her to her face on MTV, on, on the show Agher Kaukab, which aptly means on another planet, um, <laughs> hosted by Pierre Rabat. Um, and so what happened is they they basically, uh, you know, put on some of her videos and, and you know, these, these are topics that have to be treated with a bit of maturity. Topics, you know, such as, you know, how to increase arousal and things like that. You know, you, you have to be a little bit mature to talk about this. They don't have so much maturity, apparently, on, on another planet. Um, and so they made fun of the videos and then Sandrine came on and then they, they kind of ridiculed her and objectified her to her face. That you had hosts telling her that her voice is sexy and that, you know, that they shouldn't, you know, that she shouldn't speak about these things and the way she's speaking about them. There was huge backlash. Uh, Piedra oh, Blood later. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it, it, it makes complete sense when you watch that. It's so uncomfortable. And, and, this, and, you know, Lebanon is a country with systemic sexism and a long history of it. I mean, women can't pass on citizenship. You know, the religious courts discriminate against them in everything from child custody to marriage and divorce. So, and, and that's... Try walking down the street. Exactly. <laughs> that, that's, that's not yeah. even to talk about the non-systemic, you know, sort of uh, <laughs> discrimination. Um, and so she got a lot of support and, uh, you know, uh, there's a, you know, a, a plug here. I did an interview with her, which you can check out. We'll put it in the bio uh, where she kind of talks about what happens and, and also talks about the importance of the work she does. All right. I, and, and both of these things are, are very, very important issues and they do definitely play into politics. But we, we're recording this uh, on Sunday. And the Sunday, March 14th, actually, which is a good day to talk about politics. Uh, In Lebanon, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, given uh, the, the March 14th protests 16 years ago uh, that ended up seeing the withdrawal of Syrian forces uh, later that year. But what happened yesterday, March 13th, was we saw another steep decline in the lira. 
and what drove people. And, and that seems to have driven a lot of people out to the streets. Not a lot, a lot. We're not seeing October 17th numbers, but we are. Uh, what happened yesterday was definitely something new, was definitely something uh, significant as well. And so I, I think we have to go back and try to figure out exactly what's going on with this, what's going on with the economic situation and how that plays into the politics and the different political games that are being played by the politicians right now. Right. Over over the past 10 days or so, we've seen this return to the streets in a way. And we've seen it, yes, it's smaller numbers, but sort of high efficacy. We've, we've seen road closures across the country, people pushed to the streets by this combination of sort of political deadlock, this feeling of incredible stasis, like we're not going anywhere at the same time as everything seems to be falling apart. Um, and so there's been a lot of questions raised about why people are back in the streets. Is it parties that are doing this? You know, is it the Amal movement? And is it the, the Lebanese forces? Or, uh, you know, other questions about why very small numbers of protesters have been able to hold on to the streets, right? right. Uh, given that in the past, it was much larger numbers and security forces pushed them back. And I'd love to bring you in here, Jad, and, and you know, pose this question to you of what do you think is actually happening here today? We're obviously in a political crisis, a socio-economic crisis, crisis upon crisis upon crisis. Why why are we seeing this movement on the streets now? And, and what does it tell us about the country at this moment? So there are lots of legitimate reasons for the protest to happen because, you know, the devaluation of the lira is now uh, at the ca catastrophic levels and with the implication of the lockdowns and the uh, coronavirus uh, uh, repercussions, also these aggravate the result, the social uh, impact of the problem. But I'm not sure if the symbolism of, uh, like, just catching up with the number of 10,000 liras for each dollar just sparked some anger in the streets. Or uh, there are some political players, other than the just pure anger of the population, that have some stake in the game, like the Lebanese forces or other players. Uh, I don't concern myself much with this question because uh, it's, it's not... It's the stigma that the uh, ruling class just tried to put on the demonstrations from October 17th, that uh, mm -hmm. there are some uh, background deals going on or uh, some players that we don't know about trying to push the people to the street with some uh, hidden agenda. Because you don't have to do this because the, this, the, the, the ruling class haven't done anything uh, since, uh, let's say, September 2019 the beginning of the devaluation of the event. So you have to expect that chaos will ensue at the at the end. Right. Yeah, I mean, people have a legitimate reason to go out and protest, regardless of uh, any sort of outside intervention or any, anybody encouraging them to. I mean, mm -hmm. if you see your money get locked up in the bank and you, like the real value of your wages nosediving, that's mm -hmm. not to mention harder to get drugs for you know yourself or your family members yeah yeah you 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 have a real reason that the the things that allow you to live a normal life like with peace of mind allowing you yeah. to take care of yourself and those close to you that is slipping away it's vanishing away you've got a reason to go out and protest yeah. if, if you're in this position, unless you're one of these, you know, ultra wealthy people. Right. So, and, and, and so I, I sort of agree with you, Jad, like the, the question of, you know, oh, is this some sort of manipulation? That's beside the point, because the fundamental issue here is that the country has gone off the rails. Mm. 
There was a question, you know, there was a sense uh, maybe a year ago now, you know, because the protests were so long ago, that politics was in the hands of the people, at least for a short while. And I wonder how you see it now, Jad, you know, with all this talk of, uh, you know, political deals in the background, you know, with what we saw at Kirki, with uh, this rallying of Christian sort of uh, sentiment around, you know, uh, Lebanon's uh, independence and uh, Lebanon's neutrality. And at the same time, you have, you know, pushing and pulling from various sides. I wonder, you know, when you when you see what's happening on the streets and uh, to, to what extent do you see it as actually something that can influence and change politics or rather as a result of the politics? Yeah, I'm not optimistic about the streets anymore because uh, at the end, we just have to wake up to the idea that uh, marching in the streets or having demonstrations are just means to an end. Uh, my point of frustration a year and a half now after the, this whole collapse began is that we don't have political forces that uh, have just grabbed the initiative to be able to mobilize the streets for a certain end. So now we see uh, like uh, some sort of reactions, angry reactions, definitely, mm. about what's going on in the country. But to what end? Yes, we can demonstrate our, our anger. That's, that's totally understandable and it's right. Uh, but uh, for what end? That, that's my problem. And here I, I see the, the traditional political class with the patriarch or other religious figures uh, just getting uh, more and more um, without any fear of, uh, any feeling of fear from any repercussion mm. like they had uh, a year and a half ago. So now I see the, 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 the initiative is in the hand of the um, traditional political parties and the ruling class we know, and not in the hands of the opposition, even though we have uh, all, all, all the reasons in the world to have like a paradigm shift and a shift in the balance of power towards another end. But that's the chaos of the opposition uh, also. Right. Mm. But I, I, I mean, there are concerns though for these elite right because they can see that you know they, they they're not blind they're not stupid they they know exactly what is going on for instance we saw this week the army commander came out and gave a very very stark warning saying you know like soldiers are starving just like other people mm -hmm. which is <laughs> you have to do a double take uh yeah. almost wait did he really yeah. just say that and, and and also we had uh, uh Muhammad Muhammad Fahmi, Fahmi, yeah right? the interior uh, minister come out which was i mean even more remarkable uh, you know, the same guy who live on air said that he had killed two people without any context came back on air and and basically said that the security situation in the country has broken down. Um, and he also said, quote, Lebanon is open to all possibilities, not just assassinations. God knows what. And That's I mean, something you would expect from an analyst, not from a minister. Right. Exactly. And this is, you know, this is the man in charge of security telling you, hey, man, there's no more security. And I, I mean, again, how do you read these comments? You know, when you have the army commander coming out and saying this and the interior minister coming out and, and saying this and basically saying, you know, we, these supposed pillars of the state, no longer can uphold the state and do our jobs. Yanni, is it is it pressure uh, or is it reality? How, how do you read these comments? Are they trying to exert pressure on the politicians? Or is it, in a way, paving uh, paving the way to, to lawlessness, which some people fear? I mean, if mm. you have the interior minister saying, you know, hey, I, I basically can't do anything about security breaches, then if you are anyone from a robber to an assassin, you kind of take that as a carte, uh, you know, a carte blanche, no? Uh, maybe. <laughs> yes, yeah. I can say so. But, the, but what, what I take from these uh, kind of... Uh, uh, speeches or whatever that these officials uh, are saying now is a reflection of their fears 
because uh, uh, the political class in Lebanon, you can say anything about it, but you can't say that they are a bunch of stupid people. They are not stupid. They know the country well. Mm. So they, they know now that uh, after a year and a half of a, of a free fall, with all the social repercussions that we are living in, they know that their their biggest fear right now is the security status of the country. Where are we heading, especially in a country where we have some uh, bad memories of a long-lasting civil war? So mm. now with the, with the social collapse going on, the, uh, the security officials in the country are just like sounding the bells that we are going into a direction where we cannot order our troops to keep the security on the streets. So here you can see that the usually our political class isn't so quick to react with the, uh, any social demands. But two days after the uh, army commander's speech about the whole social uh, situation and its impact on the army, mm. uh, you know Ali Hassan Khalil and his draft law with the yes. one million lira raise. So that was quite quick. So now you can understand how fearful they are from this specific situation relating to the security forces. Right. And I, I mean, I just I just wonder, though, is it, you know, like Ali Hassan Khalil's proposal, this one million lira for I think it's uh, 135,000 members of all the security forces in total, you know, from parliament police to ISF to army. I mean, that just a doesn't seem very realistic uh, because you're printing uh, somewhere like 800 billion uh, Lebanese pounds for that. You know, uh, and and so so it sort of seems in in it seems to be in the sphere of what you would call uh, politics or uh, you know or populism in a way. And and what struck me from Joseph Hound's speech is it also seemed you know a, a little bit. I mean, the fact that it was broadcast live, you don't see this kind of imagery from the army usually. They release like these short statements. So to have the army commander come out and and say this publicly, I again I wonder you know is is the fear real and they are reacting to it. Or are, is that also part of this politics? Is this, Yanni, can we consider them part and parcel of, of this political establishment? Or are they, in a way, outside? And do they are they actually scared, in a way, of you know what's happening? And maybe those, those things are not mutually exclusive. But I wonder to what extent, Yanni, they're, they're, they're playing in the same court or they're, they're in different courts. Well, uh, you reach a point you don't know uh, the, the fine line between uh, populism or uh, mere stupidity because populism <laughs> is, is, is part of the game in Lebanon, you know. Uh, if yeah. you remember 2017, the, uh, I don't know how to call it in English, but the The salary scale, yeah. The, the, yeah, the, the increasing the salaries of public sector employees. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So uh, uh, that was a, a strike of craziness because the numbers didn't add up and they knew it, but they had an election six months after that. So they right. nevertheless just put it into law. So now you, you don't know if Ali Hassan Khalil knows what he's talking about or he's just playing uh, populist politics. It can go both ways. But the most, the more interesting point is the what you, what you spoke about, the... Uh, Broadcasting of the army commander's speech live on TV. Yes, that's not uh, natural in Lebanon. We don't do this usually. But what's fearful here is that it marks maybe a shift in the nature of the political system we live in towards a more, uh, a more expanded role for the security forces just to uh, be able to break down any uh, opposition in the streets because they are just admitting that we don't have any political solution for the time being. Yeah, and, and, and that is something, you know, a, a takeover by the army or something like that, which is the extreme version of that, right? 
that's something that is not without popular support. There are a lot of people who actually think the politicians have fucked up time to just like make it a military dictatorship for a limited amount of time to just get things together. Right. That, I mean, that, 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 that's, that's how, you know, rotten the state is that, that a, a, a significant portion of the population thinks, give us a military dictatorship. And you can't help yourself with, uh, with all of the uh, excellent uh, experiences in our neighboring countries to just uh, <laughs> import such experience again. <laughs> that would be catastrophic. Right. It's what a protester told me early on in the days of the protest. He's like, oh, so they're talking about a temporary like military takeover. Look at our region, man. There's no such thing as a temporary military takeover. Once they're in, they're in. And there are reasons in Lebanon why why it's it's a bit sort of more different, difficult yeah. for the army to take over. Uh, we do have another you know major force that has arms that sort of rival the, the army's uh, arms. Uh, but it, it is attractive to sort of, you know, look at this situation and be like, yeah, let's Ritz-Carlton these people, right? You know, like the, <laughs> like the Saudi Ritz affair. Let's take all these politicians, throw them in, in a place together, try them, and let's move, move on forward. But there are various reasons why that's not possible. I think it's interesting when we speak about, you know, this, this proposal by the, fi the former finance minister who should know his numbers. The former finance minister, you know, this million lira for, for each person. Mm. We had this week the approval in parliament of a, of a social safety net, right? It's a 246 million dollar World Bank loan. And what this would do is $200 million of that would be direct cash distribution to about 150,000 families. And basically, they get up to 800,000 Lebanese pounds per month. It's 200,000 pounds per household, and then 100,000 pounds extra for each family member you have that's capped at six family members. And so this is quite a massive thing, right? You're talking about up to 800,000 people when you speak of 150,000 uh, households. This would also uh, support the education of students aged 13 to 15. Uh, it, would, it would provide aid to 87,000 students. Um, and basically, that's to stop people dropping out of school because the economic conditions in the country mean that a lot of people have been dropping out to work. You have child labor increasing to a large extent as families find that they need you know, basically to expand the, the, their, their sources of income. And, and the, the whole idea of this uh, World Bank uh, loan is to cut extreme poverty in the country from 22%, where it stands today, according to World Bank estimates, to under 10%. So that's, that's a massive impact, right, for yeah. the lives of people in this country. That is a huge change. But we did sort of, the devil is in the details here, right? And, and what we did see is that out of this massive quarter billion uh, loan, the, the MPs, and in, in, consort, in concert with the government, cut funding a few million dollars for oversight uh, of a, th a third party oversight, basically, of the way these funds are dispersed. They cut uh, funding for an external audit, and they limited the scope from from just uh, to just one year, from three years. And they also, importantly, cut a contract to hire companies to verify that all of these families who are getting the funds actually, A, need it, and B, uh, you know, apply it to the criteria and go through a transparent process. And instead, they, they handed that process to the Social Affairs Ministry, which there are serious governance questions about the Social Affairs Ministry. And so what seems to have happened here uh, is that we have a massive, you know, we have a, an amount of money coming in that really could support a large part of the population, the most poor people in the population. And what MPs have done in concert, again, with the government, because this was approved by the government and referred back to parliament, is they removed the funding for the oversight. So in a situation, you know, today where you have this complete political deadlock, where we feel like we're drifting nowhere and if anywhere, we're drifting under, 
you you have uh, this money coming in that is now going to be spent in a way if if the world bank allows that to happen it's going to be spent in a way which allows potentially for it to be handed out through clientelism and other means to put you know people who are close to political parties thereby perhaps sustaining that political system and and this is a concern that uh, a lot of activists and researchers have pointed out even before friday's parliament session when the politicians actually did something and passed something right these these words were there. We did a, an episode uh, a few uh, episodes back on the podcast with uh, Semi Zareb uh, about this World Bank loan. Go back and and uh, take a listen to that uh, if you haven't. It's it's really interesting because oh you, you know you say oh the politicians aren't doing anything. Well no on Friday they just passed this really big thing that's going to lift you know a hundred. 60,000 families out of poverty, which is huge. That's that's great. The politicians are doing something. But then what you explain about the devil in the details there, oh no, that that's right. They it, it, It's entirely possible that this oversight was cut for a specific reason, not just mm -hmm. to increase the number of families that get aid at the end of the day. And then there's also a secondary reason as well, right? This is a huge amount of dollars coming into the country when the country is very deeply in the red. The financial system, you know, owes billions and billions and billions of dollars that it does not have, U.S. dollars that it does not have. This $246 million, if it, if it happens, will go to the central bank. Then yeah. the state will be able to use it as it sees fit while giving out just, you know, printing lira to give out to the actual recipients. Right. And, and, and at, a, at a rate lower than the market rate. As, as it stands today, that rate, 6,240 lira, is pretty much half the market rate. So you're looking at a, about a 50% discount there on, on you know, on, on what the people actually get versus the money that's coming in. Right. So um, is the World Bank just basically helping prop up the current uh, political and financial system? It, in its worst case, if they do approve this, right, because the World Bank has to approve these amendments. Um, mm. And, and they, were, they were not approved by the World Bank bank. Uh, and, and what's amazing, just a small note here about the way politics is done in this country, when the government referred this back to parliament, this, this these amendments, they said that they had gotten the approval of the World Bank. It's clear that they didn't. And, mm. and that was raised during the session. And that's also something that I confirmed independently. And so now we're in a situation where if if they do approve this, it, it's, you know, it raises a lot of questions, but there is potential that they won't approve it um, because of these amendments. And these are conditions for disbursement of the funds. And so it's a bad situation where the, you know, the politics could even prevent this money from, from getting to the people. But we saw this exact, not exact same situation, but a very similar situation play out uh, over the past month uh, regarding vaccines between, right. the, the, between the Lebanese politicians and the World Bank. Essentially, Lebanese politicians saying, you need to give us this, you know, if you don't give the if you if you don't give Lebanon the vaccines or, you know, now we have this two hundred forty six million dollars for impoverished mm. people, you're not punishing us. You're, you're punishing, punishing people. the people. Yeah. And I'm I am sure that the people at the World Bank, the people in D.C., they understand this very, very well that, you know, what can you do if, mm. if you're in their position? Are you going to punish the people because of the bad behavior of the politicians? Mm. That hasn't worked out very well historically. There is also another point concerning the World Bank and the $246 million uh, uh, mm. loan for the poverty, extreme poverty, uh, which is that, first of all, I, I have my own objections on such kind of programs because these kind of programs doesn't don't uh, usually uh, fix the problem. They just give more time for the government to do something while at the same time having a problem momentarily solved, let's say. 
But the bigger devil, which is not only in the details that you just mm-hmm. spoke of, is that uh, the, this 800 liras for a family of six, which is the highest number that a family can get from this program, yeah. uh, will get crushed through the hyperinflation that we are seeing. So it's a program with no, not a big shelf life. So if it doesn't get approved right away within an economic plan and the monetary plan to just stabilize to a certain extent the situation, the, mm. the amount of this, this help will just get lost. Definitely. And, and this was actually supposed to be. So negotiations for this began in April 2020 when Hassan, oh, wow. Yabber, Hassan Yab's government came to power. The social safety net, if you recall, it was part of the government plan. They were talking about an IMF program with reforms and a certain austerity. And the social safety net is sort of it's the safety net. It's the last thing. Right. That's supposed to catch. Yeah. The people. Back then, the, but none the of the other things rate. happened. Yeah, yeah. And the exchange rate back then was about less than 4,000 liras for a yeah. dollar. Now it's time yeah. three. Yeah, I, I mean, and and so they've said that the exchange rate will is is uh, able to shift, but it always will be under the market rate, uh, and and that's according to, to you know to the way it's been laid out in the loan. Well, essentially, and, it's up to Riyadh Salim, right? It's up to because Riyad it's based Salim. fundamentally, it's like a factor one point mm. five or something times the whatever bank rate, which is exactly. thirty nine hundred. It's set by BDL, and so the it seems to be completely at the discretion of Lebanese authorities whether they alter this rate in the future. Yeah. yeah but sh- note here that if the uh, rate gets fixed somehow and the number is not 6,240, I guess, it's yeah. now, let's say, 10,000 uh, liras for the dollar, we don't have a larger amount of, uh, of, of, of aid. You have more families getting aid. So uh, mm. the, the twist here is that whatever you do, 800,000 liras is part of the program as the maximum or ceiling uh, of aids given. But then if you have a bigger share of liras, definitely you'd have more families that would get some aid. Right. And I wonder, you know, you raised the point about, you know, that you don't like these kinds of programs because they basically kick the can down the road. What, what, you know, but it's such a dilemma because you need, you know, people need this and you're faced with a situation where, you know, politicians don't look like they're going to do anything. So what do you do in this situation? I mean, do you just, you know, if you're the World Bank, can you basically say, listen, no, we're not going to give you this until you pass reforms? Or do you, you know, appeal, you know, is your 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 human instincts sort of went went out there and you say, listen, people people need to live in the end. I, I mean, I wonder how you approach that dilemma, Jean. Well, uh, I, I don't speak about these issues from the perspective of the World Bank. I understand totally what the World Bank does and how the bank just uh, engages such uh, humanitarian problems. I, I just try to see it from the perspective of the Lebanese government. Mm. You, you you don't you don't just go to just kick the can down the road like you said. You ha- you have to have such programs as part of a program of an eco- economic program to help you socially uh, get through this transition transitional phase. Definitely, but you, you should have a priority with the with the World Bank uh, specifically trying to get some financing for uh, uh, so safety net programs with some sustainability, like having uh, I don't know. Uh, some free hospital hospitalization for most Lebanese, uh, social security, or uh, in terms of education, free education in terms of university, just to lower the cost 
on the population in a more sustainable program that would go further mm. than just a year or two. It would be part of your economic system that you are rebuilding. We don't have this now, so we're just gaining some time by feeding uh, people who are in need and they should be fed and they should be taken care of, but with no uh, horizon at the end. Right. Right. All of these are band-aid solutions, right? They're they're all treating the symptoms and not the fundamental causes of the problems. And that, that seems to be the strategy. Like let's let's use like these international actors, mm. uh wh- whether that is, you know, the World Bank and everything, or maybe like some deal with the Iraqi authorities to get uh oil for electricity. We, we will lean on their goodwill in order to put a band-aid over this, but we're not going to actually solve the problem otherwise known as begging <laughs> <laughs> yeah but but this would take us back to the idea of the uh, what we labeled uh, quote unquote the army takeover it, it's not an army takeover definitely but mm. what's happening is when, when you are gaining time uh, through these band-aid solutions you would need some sort of uh, a, a strong security apparatus who would just uh, help you in gaining time quieting mm. down any opposition and this in Lebanon cannot be done by the army alone. Definitely we have Hezbollah and we have this whole uh, issue with the ha- not having monopoly over the handling of the army. Yeah, yeah. So now if we put it in, into a regional context, you can see that someone is betting on the American-Iranian deal to take place with some sort of army Hezbollah cooperation to reach a certain phase Uh, a certain era, maybe a year after now, where this deal is done. From Mm. now till then, uh, a certain uh, cooperation between all of the uh, political parties in Lebanon, we know know that our political parties are armed, definitely not uh, as much as the army or Hezbollah, but they have to do some sort of uh, like uh, taking down any opposition from now to the year. And this band-aid solution will also help in quieting down any social unrest. Yeah, and speaking of, you know, potential social unrest, I mean, you know, in the same week that we had the man in charge of security saying, hey, there's no more security, we had the man in charge of electricity and energy saying, hey, there might be no more electricity. And and it was quite an amazing scene. You know, the outgoing energy minister, Raymond Rajar, he went up to the presidential palace with Nada Bustani, the former energy minister, spoke with Aoun and then gave the statement where he said, by the end of the month, if we do not get a, a cash advance for, for you know, a billion dollars to buy fuel, there will be electricity. And he goes on to say, can you, can you imagine uh, in the 21st century that Lebanon is a country without uh, electricity and this would be so bad for the economy? And, you know, he, he basically stands there for a minute telling the Lebanese people, almost lecturing the Lebanese people about, hey, can you imagine not having electricity? And I'm sitting there going like, yes, <laughs> we've sort <laughs> yeah. of lived with this for a very long time. Um, and and it, the, the question there almost becomes like, yes, we can imagine this, but can you, Mr. Rajar, sort of, digest the fact that you and and the party that appointed you have headed this ministry for over a decade and haven't got electricity and and you know so so the issue here is basically that the, the energy minister says that you know if we don't buy fuel there will be no electricity by the end of the month he described it as quote potential total darkness and and the reason here is that Lebanon's energy system is really stupid it's it's basically running old power plants and new power plants on heavy fuel oil which is extremely pollutant, inefficient, and super expensive compared to other sources of fuel. We literally have to... And subsidized. 
and subsidized, right? And and so it's carted in every, uh, you know, regularly on barges and then offloaded and then burnt in these power plants. And if we don't buy the fuel, then no electricity. And so now we're in a position where we need, as has happened many times before, another you know, cash transfer uh, from uh, the from from the government to the uh, Electricité du Liban to buy some fuel. And this happens over and over. And what what happens every time is that the Lebanese people are given two options, you know, settle for this unsustainable, crappy, expensive solution or darkness. And you're always going to choose whatever it is other than darkness. And, and I think the, the important point here that was made by Jessica Obeid, you know, an energy analyst who we've also had on the show before, is that politicians know that if they let the country fall into darkness, then their time might be really limited. Can you imagine if, if the country falls into darkness and like hospitals can no longer run, you have, you know, massive amounts of pro produce going to waste, it really might spell sort of the, the end or at least a serious, you know, period of rioting and, and sort of, you know, it, chaos in a way. And so they will do whatever they have to do to get that money for the fuel, no matter in what form it is, even if we have to live through some days of darkness, you know, even if your life is hard for a bit, they, the point that she made is they will dip into the last dollar of the central bank reserves to pay for that fuel, because it is, it is one of the things that, you know, it's sort of the last barrier keeping them in power. But, but in the meantime, I think that it's very interesting the way that this has been turned into a like hot button political issue. There's, there's, actually a political fight over this which ties into like cabinet formation and everything mm. else because essentially you have on the one side you know you mentioned uh uh, uh and Aoun and bustani and all mm. these people the fpm, FPM yeah. on the one side saying we need the full you know one billion dollar advance for edl this is a legal issue parliament needs to pass this right so it, it, it comes down to politics and so the FPM is saying, let's do this. Let's do business as normal. At mm. least we'll be able to keep the lights on, all of this stuff. On the other side, though, uh, which, which, by the way, you know, like there is a very good argument for that. Like, we don't want darkness, right? So let's do this instead. You do want power. Yeah. On the other side, you see a, a constellation of the other parties saying, no, 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 no. Like, these are potentially some of the last dollars coming out of the BDL reserves that we have left. We cannot afford to just throw them away on EDL yet again. We actually need real reforms this time. And so you see them actually, politicians, linking the issue to cabinet formation because in order to conduct these reforms, you need a new government. You need a, an actual government. A caretaker government yeah. is not supposed to do reforms. And so essentially you have FBM versus everybody else, and this becomes like this... this new major issue regarding mm. the formation of a new government mm. which has been you know going on for uh it's been 217 days since Diab's government fall as of Monday 143 days since Hariri was designated October till now you know when yeah. Hariri was designated till now uh, uh, Hariri and Aoun, the two men who have to agree on this uh on, on a new government they they seem worlds apart yeah. And and now not only is there this argument over who gets what portfolio, does the FPM get a blocking third or not, mm. but also you have this added on, oh, well, we're gonna throw electricity into the mix, which mm. I understand the argument mm. of we only have a few dollars left. Mm. We need to spend them correctly. Now is the time to do reforms. Yeah. But uh yeah. 
li- linking it in this way to cabinet formation. Do you do you really want to do that? I, yeah, but I you have know. to remember you have to remember that this government was labeled that it's the uh, six months uh, mission government. Yeah. Just we have to mm. to to make some quick reforms. So it's just a transitional government for six months. Uh, now yeah. we have maybe seven months in the fall of the Diab's government. I, I wonder what you make of the situation today, Jad, where you have basically Hariri saying, these are my demands and I will not uh, you know, stand down. Aoun basically saying the same thing. Uh, but then in the foreground, you have Hassan Diab's resigned government, which is basically taking all the punches, right? They are the punching bag. And you have the politicians kind of in the background playing playing their game in a way, a game that seems to, to have fallen apart as it, as it has many times in the past. I, I wonder how you just see this, you know, the, the, the situation in terms of the, you know, this, this political uh, game, for lack of a better word, that, that is being played out today at the cost of the people. Yeah, well, since they define politics for the foreseeable future as just uh, a power struggle to just stay in government waiting for any regional uh, political solution to have its reflection on, Le- on Lebanon, and then they'll see what they'll do. So mm. uh, I, I can't see uh, no one besides Hezbollah who has any interest in forming the government because Hezbollah, yes, is waiting for the Iranians to uh, have any deal with the U.S. to just clarify uh, the power sharing uh, uh, in the region and Lebanon and thus uh, Hezbollah's role. So they need a government because they need to wait and they need someone to help in quieting down the social unrest without having any uh, uh, solution to the root causes of our problem. So that's a difficult mm. task. So they need the government. But I can't see how Hariri needs the government when he knows that being prime minister for the next year at least is the worst task that can be handed to any politician because right. uh, the, the, the collapse will just be harder and harder socially. And at the same time, I can't see uh, Michel Aoun and Gibran Basil having so much interest in having Hariri as the head of a government in a government that can stay in power long after the uh, uh, the end of next year, even if they postpone the parliamentary election, which is an option, or and if they postpone the presidential election, so it's an option. So I can't see politically speaking, in the power struggle definition of politics, how this government is beneficial to anyone, especially since they don't have any political programs to solve the issues. They are just trying to cling to power, waiting to see how the regional uh, contest will uh, will end up. Right. And and so it's 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 easy to kind of, you know, get bogged in the in the severe hopelessness of now. And many people, I think, do place uh, some kind of hope or at least, uh, you know, look towards parliamentary elections in 2022 uh, with with sort of at least a bit of anticipation. Um, uh, but what you seem to be saying, uh, and I think I've, I've heard you speaking about this on, on other platforms, is that given the context today and the history of this country where we had elections postponed, you know, from, from 2013 until 2018, that that might not happen. And, and I wonder, first of all, your take on that. Do you think that in the current context, when you speak of like a regional deal, you know, these things are fundamentally undemocratic. These are things that are hatched out in back rooms, right? Um, and, and elections almost is an inconvenience when you're doing these kinds of deals. So do you think elections in the current context are viable, that they, that they would happen? And if they don't, I mean, you know, where does that leave us? Because for many people, 
uh, I, I think that the 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 last uh, you know the valve the the safety valve is like okay maybe we have elections but if we don't have elections I might blow uh, you know because like what is the outlet where is the hope where is the possibility to change if you don't have elections yeah but, but if you put it into context you, you see that so let's say since uh, the 17th of October 2019 and the beginning of the big demonstration of the uprising you would say that maybe uh, six months after it. If I were one of these political parties, traditional political parties in Lebanon, uh, in power, I would go for for an election because I know that I have the uh, financial resources, uh, I have the government, and I have uh, big chunks of the population that are still siding on my side. So I can win elections. So you would ask yourself, why didn't they do an election just to get rid of all of the legitimacy of the uprising? Because then you would have a new uh, people who are elected in power, uh, which right. might be the same people that we have now. Why didn't they do this? Because their internal problems wouldn't let them go that far, because such an election would shift the majority from the 8th of March of Hasbollah specifically, probably to the 14th of March. Right. Because Hasbollah is being now in the forefront of the uh, last three or four years in, uh, of government. Being uh, having Michel Aoun as the president who is an ally and having more and more uh, bigger roles in politics in Lebanon. So if that's the case, the problem would be that, yes, they can do an election, but they won't do it because it might shift the power sharing uh, status quo in a big way. Right. So the problem would be what would they do in 2022, uh, specifically maybe uh, a year, 14 months from now. So yeah. what would they do? Can they postpone the election and face a, a, a political dilemma with no horizon? Because an election at least is a closure. Or right. they go further and further into power politics, waiting for the election to be a reflection of the uh, regional and non-democratic, as you said, solution. So they would have an electoral law that would favor some people over the others to reflect the uh, new balance of power. I believe their uh, past experiences would uh, point us to the latter option, not the, the first one. The settlement before the elections, as we're used to, right? You know, we get yep. this many times, even when Aoun was elected, you kind of know the result of the vote before it happens. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I'm, I'm interested, though, because I mean, we're recording this, as we said, on March 14th. And I, uh, the, the way I see things, at very least, you know, uh, you have March 8th versus, Mar versus March 14th, you know, the, the paradigm through which all Lebanese politics has been analyzed for, you know, uh, since 2005. But w within these coalitions, like we, we see a lot of fraying ties. So uh, especially, you know, the, I mean, first off, it's, it's been, you know, longstanding problems between obviously the FPM and AMO. Right mm -hmm. in the, in the March eighth coalition, and now we're seeing problems between the FPM and Hezbollah, like the the the, the two big bulwarks there, uh, and and so we have an issue there with Nabi Berri kind of siding a bit more with uh, some of his other allies who were traditionally called March fourteenth. Uh, does the March fourteenth March eighth 
division make as much sense as an analytical framework these days? Or are things dissolving in such a way? Is there sort of a reconfiguration of a co of the constellation that we, when we're thinking about, when we're talking about what's going to happen in 2022, or even what's going to happen with government formation? Yeah. Uh, do do we need to be? I don't I don't know. Thinking more broadly uh, about this, Jad, I, I wonder what your thoughts are. And, and also, just where does October seventeenth play? Into yeah, it, right. Yeah, you, you know, you yeah. have the Mar March eighth, March fourteenth, and October seventeenth, which is sort of a new dynamic in that. Well, I have, I have, uh, like, uh, an opinion about the matter. I hope I, I don't get a long answer because I'm interested in the subject for a couple of weeks now, and I've, I've reached a, a personal conclusion, which says that yeah. the, the narrative of eighth of and fourteenth of March is one narrative, not two narratives, because mm. this division feeds on itself, because uh, it's rooted in uh, a black and white perception of politics, but it goes both ways. So uh, mm. some of the people, so let's uh, make it simple. So if now Jean Blatt, let's say, says something bad about Gibran Basile, he would be uh, giving Gibran a service, because uh, the base, the confessional base of Gibran Basile Right uh, is being blamed by another confession, so they both gain from such a narrative, so such uh, a dynamic. Mm -hmm. And I believe the 14th and 8th of March is one narrative because they both gain uh, from such the, such a division. The, my problem with it is that now the traditional uh, uh, political parties we have in Lebanon they are trying to uh, reinvigorate this narrative again for it to uh, dominate the uh, new challenges uh, that were brought up after the financial collapse. So they are trying to regroup people by uh, meddling with fear, definitely, and trying to uh, tap on the bad, let's say, or uh, bloody uh, historical experiences that we had in this country to just regroup people confessionally and on the basis of the 8th and 14th of March. This is a Gramscian take maybe on the issue uh, how mm. the powerless consent to be dominated by those in positions of power. That's a way, because this narrative created the common sense for the Lebanese, that politics is perce perceived this way. And uh, we can see that now this interrelated uh, relationship between uh, being uh, economically uh, dominated or uh, uh, lower class and subordinated at the same time to those in power. So hmm. what's the relation between this narrative that they are trying to reinvigorate with the 17th of March, uh, 17th of October movement? I believe it's a, 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 an antagonistic relationship because in terms of uh, conceptualizing the idea of the two uh, events, it's hmm. uh, clearly the opposite. The 14th of March was the date that we like uh, have remembrance to for getting the Syrians out of Lebanon. Right, so definitely it was during April, but that movement just wanted the Syrians to right. go out. So that date signifies a conceptualization of politics in Lebanon that our problems go uh, come from abroad. It's the Syrians' problem. Once they go out, we can rule our country and we can have a better uh, society and a better country. The 17th of, of October movement as an idea is that no, our problem comes from within. It's not from abroad. It's not from the Syrians. It's not from the Americans. It's not from the Iranians. They definitely make our problems harder, but our problem is within our own political system that needs change. 
That's why the narratives of the 8th and 14th of March trying to dominate the picture now to stop the 17th of October movement from getting this idea uh, rooted in the political culture in Lebanon. No, the problem isn't within our uh, political system. It's just with the other. That's my take. No, it's yeah. That's I, I mean a very interesting take because it gets into sort of vertical versus horizontal reside, divides, right? I mean, yeah. it's like March fourteenth and March eighth are, are on two opposite ends, whereas October seventeenth seems to be more of a top down, right? I think that's how you described it, Ben. Right. It's yeah. it's a sort of that's more true. yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm curious though, Jed. Like under this analysis, though, can can the FPM really afford to reinvigorate its March eighth ties, though, right? Because if they are unable to, and, and and definitely we have seen pressure coming from the FPM base hmm. that, oh, we are not happy with the deal with Hezbollah, we are not happy with the way things have gone. Can Gibran Basile really afford uh, to go all in with Hezbollah and Amal in, in a reinvigoration of the March 8th movement? Yeah, well, you're saying that, um, let's say that most parties in Lebanon are hit hard by the crisis. Uh, definitely, in terms of their allegiances and the, the 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 their legitimacy towards their basis, they all have their own problems. Now, definitely, the FPM specifically, and let's say Hariri, Jubran and Hariri, Jubran Basil and Saad Hariri, uh, are facing the the biggest problems because their political parties are dwindling and they have some organizational issues. How would Jubran deal with this issue? Is a question because now. To reinvigorate the 8th of March versus the 14th of March uh, uh, division would mean that they would have to be second-tier uh, allies to Hezbollah with no say, no real say, in how politics in the foreseeable future would be dealt with. If mm. they don't, and they want to cling to their uh, efforts for the last five to six years that they want to be uh, like uh, uh, playing power politics with both sides to just gain as much as possible from both the 14th and the 8th of March uh, basis, there is a real risk that they will be crushed because there is no third way, uh, third path right. for the confessional narrative to go through. The only third path is to change of the political system. Would they go that far? Uh, till now, they are just uh, going back and forth in like a, a su suicidal uh, trajectory with, with having trying to put a foot in each of these camps, which usually ends bad. Certainly, it seems like it's backfired. I, I think there was this idea that almost they felt that they were smarter than everyone else and they could play on both sides, right? And and that has sort of ended in a drastically bad way for Gibran Basile at this point with, you know, sanctions and, and sort of all his relationships falling apart. And with Hariri, um, you know, like he's taken such a massive hit, uh, you know, uh, first off, because, you know, he was prime minister for so long and, and didn't really, right. wasn't able to get a lot of things done but, but, uh, and, and didn't get uh, the, the the things that were promised to him out of, you know, this deal with the FPM that he made. But now he's, he's viewed as sort of like this, oh, he's somebody who can work both with the West and with Hezbollah, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and so he has these feet in both camps, but at what cost? At a cost to his reputation, right? 
Yeah, I mean, we're going to be continuing to watch this sort of <laughs> disintegration slash reconstitution of of the of the Lebanese political system. We're very happy to have had you on, Jad. Really, we could have, I think, spoken to you for for several hours, but we do have to wrap up. Thanks a lot, um, and thanks and for bearing my 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 weak English. I'm, I'm working on it. No, no, I mean, no, no, no at no, all, no. it's it's not weak at all. I mean, come on, you dropped like Gramsci in and stuff. I mean, that that, that pretty much that pretty much puts you, you know, <laughs> sort of. <laughs> high above uh, <laughs> so uh, we really appreciate it i mean you uh, listeners you can you can check out uh, jad rosen's videos and his talks on on instagram on youtube i believe it's just his name jad rosen um his channels there um he's also on twitter super interesting uh, you know analysis most of it uh, in arabic but i believe i've i've seen you branching out into english a little bit more uh we we're, we're so happy to have had you on the show we would love to have you back at, uh, you know at, at some point part 2 yeah. yeah thanks a lot Demur. thanks a lot ben it's it's been a pleasure to to be hosted thanks I, I mean, yeah, these these issues are not going away, so we can definitely have you back at some point in the future to uh, finish the conversation. Yeah. Uh, uh, thank you so much, Jad. And we will be back next week with another episode. Until then, I'm Benjamin Red. I'm Taymour Azhedi. And I'm Jad Rosen. And this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast. Lebanese Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar Elfil.